with the title of our sermon tonight, Dark Night of the Soul. Maybe it was a time in your life of great discouragement, of great despair. Maybe it was a time of great pain. Maybe it was a time where someone close to you or maybe yourself did something so terrible, something so horrible, that it left your life in a state of just disrepair, a state of ruins. Maybe it was a time, and maybe it's now, where you felt abandoned, where you felt isolated, where you felt that you had no one else to lean on but yourself, and frankly, you, you really didn't want to lean on yourself. Now, remember in that time, the, the conversations, the, the prayers you had with God. Remember how you poured out your suffering before Him. Remember how you cried out to Him day and night in anguish and in tears. How you prayed that you might be anywhere at any time other than the place where you found yourself in that moment. Remember what it felt like to be overwhelmed with those emotions. How they were like great sea billows that hit you one after the other. Until they threatened to to take you down. There was no light. There seemed to be no way out. It was the, the dark night of the soul. I imagine for most of us, it is difficult, uh, maybe impossible, uh, to remember those times in our lives. None of us want to remember those times, and frankly, we we usually try our best to, to forget them. But I ask you to do it now, because to whatever extent we can do that, to whatever extent we can understand those emotions, we can feel them ourselves. It is to that extent that we can get a glimpse, maybe just a taste of what we find our Savior experiencing here in the garden before us tonight. As Jesus gets ready to to go to the cross, he suffers a darkness that, that in so many ways is hard for us to describe. And it's even harder for us, even 2,000 years later, to get a full grasp on. As he wrestles with all that is to come, it is clear that we are being granted access to something here that, that we will never fully comprehend, that we will never fully be able to appreciate. But again, to whatever extent we can comprehend it, To whatever extent we can appreciate it, what we find here tonight before us is the depth, it is the height, it is the width of God's love for us, poured out in Jesus Christ our Lord. And so friends, tonight, though we will never fully grasp what we have here before us, though I could never teach this in a way that would, that would hold on to the emotions that Jesus is truly feeling. Like Charles Spurgeon, I invite you into the garden. And my prayer is that as we're there, Christ will reveal to us the, the wonders, 
the depths of his love for us. So let's look at it together. What I want us to do is I want us to look at this passage under three main headings. First, I want you to notice here the depths of Christ's anguish. The depths of Christ's anguish. Now it's amazing to me that, that really throughout his life, but, but especially as the Gospels zoom in on that last week of his life, how every moment, every action, every word, Jesus is pushing himself intentionally towards the cross. Last week we celebrated Palm Sunday, and you remember there he comes in to the shouts of Hosanna, And he's certainly declaring for all the world that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's it's a triumphal moment. Even the rocks will sing if these don't. There's something else going on there too, right? Up until that point in his ministry, Jesus has silenced everyone. He said, no, don't, don't tell it. At least he's tried. Now, most everybody went and told it anyway, and the, and the word spread. But Jesus' intention was to, to keep things fairly under wraps, right? As much as he could, doing the things that he did. But now, now he is declaring it far and wide. He is the king. He is the Messiah. He is the one who was to come. And by doing that, he has put a, a target on his back, right? He has given the, the Pharisees, who didn't need much of a reason, another reason to hate him. Another reason to try and find him and kill him. And he's doing that at every turn here in this last week. As he goes into the temple, as he clears it out, all the money changers, he does all of that. As he teaches the Pharisees and the people, all he says, he is intentionally driving himself Right to the cross. We find him doing that here tonight. Now friends, that's that's a really important point for us to make. Because as we see what happens there in the garden, it's important to remember that Jesus is doing all of this and he knows full well what is coming. He knows full well what is coming where he is headed. The intentionality with which he does everything should bring us to our knees. But here, as the, he and the disciples, as they leave the upper room, they leave it one man short, right? They have had the Lord's Supper. Uh, he has washed their feet, as Charles reminded us last time he was here. He has prayed that great high priestly prayer. And in the middle of it all, Judas has gotten up to go and do what he has intended to do. Right? He goes to betray his Lord, this man who is his teacher, who is his friend. What is amazing is to find what does Jesus do. He doesn't go and hide, even though he knows what Judas is headed for. He doesn't run the other way. But there in verse 39 we read, That as was his custom, he got up and he went to the Mount of Olives. This place that surely he had shared with his disciples many times over. Shared deep conversations. Shared loving, intimate relationships there in the garden. He goes to the place where Judas surely would have known to look for him. It's intentional. 
He's driving himself to the cross. Now, when they get there, he asks the disciples to stop and to pray so that they might not fall into temptation. And he goes further in to pray, to be with his Father alone. Luke records for us that that as he kneels down and prays, it says there that, that he is in agony. Now, that Greek word, it means not only an inner pain, but it also indicates to us some form of conflict. What's happening within Jesus is a conflict. It's not just anguish in the sense that we would think. There's a battle being waged. And I think it's being waged at least on two fronts. First, you see it there in its human nature, right? We've already said uh, during our time that surely every part of Jesus' human nature was recoiling against what he knew he was about to experience. You see it there in the words that he prays. He says, Father, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me. Human nature is is overwhelmed by it to the point that that I think it's safe to say that that he does not want to have to do what, what he is about to do. In his human nature, he does not want to have to endure what he knows is coming. There's a second front of this battle, too. Surely, surely here we can be confident that Satan bringing all of his forces to bear against Christ. Remember a few weeks ago, we, we considered Christ's temptation in the wilderness, and we said then that that was a cosmic battle, that Satan was doing all he could at the beginning of Christ's ministry to stop it then. But here... Here when Christ is at the end. Here when he is alone, isolated from those he loves. Facing it all, surely, surely this is that opportune time that Satan said he was looking for after he left him, right, in the temptation. It ends, he says, Satan leaves until an opportune time. Surely this is that time. A last ditch effort to stop redemption. Jesus is bombarded. He is in conflict. And again, it's to the point that it's so overwhelming that that he has this physical response. Luke, the, the doctor, he records for us that Jesus begins to sweat blood. Renee and I, we have been reading through the the week the holy week account with the boys and with Sarah Grace. And last night we were kind of just looking forward to what was to come tonight. And Sam said, oh, I remember that. That's when Jesus sweats blood, right? I said, yeah. He said, how is that even possible? How how could that be? It blew his mind. And as I thought about it, it blew mine too. I feel like I have felt anguish to some degree, and I'm sure all of you have too, but I've never felt it to the point where my sweat became like drops of blood. Consider what Jesus must be feeling in this moment to physically react in such a way. Honestly, I don't know that that we really can, but but B.B. Warfield, he, he sums it up well when he says this. He says, in these supreme moments, our Lord sounded the ultimate depths of human anguish. 
The scope of these sufferings was very broad, embracing that whole series of painful emotions, which runs from a consternation that is appalled dismay through a despondency which is almost despair to a sense of well-nigh complete desolation. Friends, consider the anguish of our Savior. Secondly, in this passage, I want you to see, I want us to consider the cause of such anguish. Obviously, Jesus is is in a state that is hard for us to understand. But what could cause something like this? And to some degree or another, we've already hit on it. We know what he looks forward to is the reality of the cross. The reality of what will happen there. I want us to, to consider exactly what it is that Jesus anticipates finding. On the one hand, certainly that there is the the physical suffering that he must be considering. After all, crucifixion, it was a slow, painful, horrible way to die. Not only that, but you have to consider the lashes he took, the beating, the spear in his side, the nails in his hands and his feet, the crown of thorns that they placed on his head, having to carry his cross in such a state. This was a torture beyond comprehension. It wasn't just physical torture, was it? There was also the emotional side of the cross. Imagine being spit on. Imagine being mocked. Having your clothes stripped away from you. Gambled there before you. Imagine being abandoned by all those you thought were your friends. Those who were closest to you. Facing it all alone. Again, it's torture. But, without minimizing any of that in in any way, we have to realize that that the truth is, is others... If you look back through the the Christian history, if you look back through history in general, others have faced such torture. And they faced it boldly. They they faced it almost fearlessly. A few weeks ago, the ladies in their their, um, revelation study, we were studying the the church of Smyrna. uh, And there was the bishop there, Polycarp. And if you've ever read his, his martyrdom account, He's standing before the Roman leaders and they threaten to unleash all of these things, fire and beast. And I can't quote it exactly, but basically his response to it all is, why are y'all talking? Unleash it all. Go. Do it. Now, knowing that, the question that we have to ask is surely if, if others could face physical and emotional torture in that way, then surely, and again, I don't mean this irreverently at all, but surely our Lord could too. And so we have to ask, what is it that is truly driving his anguish here? The answer, of course, is it is the spiritual suffering that Christ anticipates, that causes all that we see. J.C. Ryle, in his commentary, he says, How can we account for the deep agony which our Lord underwent in the garden? What reason can we assign for the intense suffering, both mental and bodily, which he manifestly endured? There's only one satisfactory answer. It was caused by the burden of a world's imputed sin. And at the cross, 
Jesus would bear the sin, the guilt of his people. He who knew no sin would become sin. And there he would face the full force, the full weight of God's holy and righteous wrath. You know, I've gotten fond of, of quoting that passage from the book of Hebrews. Our God is an all-consuming fire. Jesus is facing that consuming fire. He is going to take the cup, the cup of God's judgment, and he is going to drink it down to the very last drop. God's wrath will be fully satisfied in his son. Imagine that. Imagine if you can the sheer terror. The sheer horror of it. Several weeks ago, we saw Peter before Jesus. And all Jesus had done, and I say all, it was a lot, so don't get me wrong. But what Jesus had done was a great miracle with fish, right? And you remember Peter's response? Lord, you're too holy for me. You've got to go. I can't be in your presence. Now imagine facing the wrath of that same holy God. That is what Jesus faces here. Now, if that wasn't enough, we we also have to consider one other thing. In taking sin's curse, Jesus would not only bear his Father's wrath, but for the first time, he would also be completely and utterly cut off. He would be forsaken. We read it there in Psalm 22, right? He would be forsaken. That perfect relationship that he had always enjoyed, that intimate relationship, loving relationship with the Father. He would be broken. He truly, truly would suffer alone. Now friends, given that, given all that we have just said, it's no wonder that he is overwhelmed. It's no wonder that he is in anguish. This is a man not merely going to die. This is not a man merely being martyred. This is not a robber facing the cross. This is a man going to face the terrible judgment of God. A judgment that was not his to bear. He is going to bear it. And with that in mind, if, there were, uh, if this was where Christ's prayer ended... We probably wouldn't be surprised, would we? If he had said, Lord, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me, and that was the end of it, we wouldn't be surprised. Because frankly, if we were in that position, that would be where our prayer would end, right? Not only would we pray those words, but we would be doing all we could to find a way out. To find some way to get out of the situation that we find ourselves in. But that's not what Jesus does, is it? No, what he does and what he says is almost as amazing as the anguish we've seen him feel. He says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Friends, here, Christ, he is committing himself to the will, to the plan of the Father. He commits himself to exactly what he knows is to come. That leads us to our third and final point. We began with the depths of anguish, but let's end tonight by considering the depths 
of Christ's love. We've seen the depths of his anguish, but now let's consider the depths of his love. How? How could he commit himself to such humiliation? How? How could he commit himself to such pain, such suffering? How could he commit himself to bear the judgment that was not rightly his? Let me ask the question in another way, a more personal way. Why would he suffer the anguish that was mine to bear? Why would he suffer it for you? Because friends, that's what he's doing. When he says, nevertheless, not my will be done but yours, he's choosing you. He's choosing his people. He's choosing me. The depths of his love are far deeper than even the depths of his anguish. He's choosing to bear our sins. Again, why would he do that? Why would he choose to be cut off? Why would he choose to be crushed for a wretch like me? We can try to act otherwise, but the truth is, is we certainly don't deserve it. We're certainly not worthy of it. We have nothing to offer in return. And so the only tenable answer, the only motive that could bring someone to do what Jesus is getting ready to do is love. It's love. And it's not just love like we throw around so easily. This is that Old Testament Hesed love, that covenant faithfulness love, that love that caused them to call Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, love that, that caused them to call and to free Israel, though they were the smallest of all the nations, though they had nothing to offer. This is the love that caused him to bind himself to Noah and to Moses and to David. And now this is the love in all of its fullness as Jesus chooses the cross. As he chooses it for you and he chooses it for I. Donald McLeod, he says this. He says, the wonder of the love of Christ for his people is not that for their sake he faced death without fear but that for their sake he faced it terrified. Terrified by what he knew and terrified by what he did not know. He took damnation. He took it lovingly. Friends, I wonder tonight, do you see? Do you know? Have you experienced the depths of Christ's love for you? Maybe you're here tonight and you're weighed down with sin. Maybe you're here tonight and you're overwhelmed by grief. Maybe you are in that time of your life that is the dark night of the soul. Friends, if so, I invite you to come to Jesus. Come to this one who has loved you with so great a love, a love that I cannot describe, a love that we cannot comprehend, a love that has caused them to bear this anguish. To bear God's judgments. Come to Him. Put your faith in Him. He will not cast you out. For those of us who have done that, we invite you to His table. He invites you to this table. Yes, we come mourning. We come confessing our sins, knowing it, that, that it was our anguish that caused it all. It was our sins that caused it all. Friends, we come rejoicing, knowing that he who has loved us with so great a love, he now promises to meet with us. He now promises to serve us.
And by faith, by faith, he promises to give us his grace. Paul, he ends Romans chapter 7 with these words. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as we consider these things, they are weighty. They are more than we can understand, more than we can comprehend. And yet, Lord, the truth is we see in every moment, in every cry, in every tear, in every response of Jesus, we see his great love for his people. Father, I pray that you would break our hearts, break our hearts with the truth that it is our sin, it's our failure, it is our fault over and over and over again that caused all that we have just seen, all that will happen as he, as he goes to the cross. Father, it is our sin that he bears. Lord, in these moments, I pray that as our hearts are broken, that you would mend them up with your love, showing us the truth that you do care for us despite our sin, that you have given us everything in Jesus. Lord, how we praise you for him tonight. Lord, how we look forward to that resurrection Sunday, that that day that's coming, where we will reign with you, where we will be with you for all of eternity, where we will gather around your table as your bride, the groom will be there, what a feast it will be. Point us ahead to that time now. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, please.